distribution over on the Gulf Coast. Obviously, um, it's well-worn. That's primarily, I think, because we were using this as a toothbrush holder, but we washed it and put it into, into service. Just a reminder, we are, after today, we're not going to um, be together on our devotional here until next Tuesday morning after Labor Day weekend. So I thought this would be a good opportunity for everybody to have an extended weekend, um, extra day Friday and Monday. And so we'll be back same time, same station next Tuesday. But for today, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 12. And let me pray for us and we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, we, um, as we face a, um, a kind of a dark chapter in Revelation and are reminded of the spiritual warfare we are in, we need eyes of faith. We need hearts that trust in you. We need um, to fly under your banner and under your wing and under your protection as your people. And so, Lord, we pray now that you would bless um, our time and open this word up to us. In your name we pray. Amen. To help us understand what's happening in Revelation chapter 12, which involves this bizarre imagery of a, of a woman giving birth and the dragon seeking to devour the baby, might be helpful to go back to Matthew chapter 16. And remember in this chapter, Peter gives his very famous confession. Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, on behalf of the disciples, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. It's, it's, a, it's a profound confession about who Jesus is. But then shortly thereafter, um, when Jesus begins to explain to the disciples that he has to go up to Jerusalem and die, what does Peter do? Peter rebukes Jesus and is saying this this cannot be the the messiah cannot suffer and die and what is what does jesus say to peter he says get behind me satan you do not have the things of god in mind and we need to understand kind of what's happening there it's not as if satan possessed peter it's not as if um peter is kind of been uh, is like a robot or a puppet that satan is is directly controlling what, what it really means is that the idea or the theology being espoused by Peter is demonic in its core, in its origin. It had sort of Satan stands behind it. And he's rebuking Peter because of what, because of that. And in a lot of ways, that's not a lot of ways, that, that's exactly what's happening in Revelation chapter 12. We've been, of course, reading up to this point about the persecutions of the church, the sufferings of the church the things we as God's people will endure until Christ comes back. And this has been represented by empires and kings and forces opposed to the church. Well, what John's going to show us in Revelation 12 is that, in fact, this is Satan who stands behind all opposition to the gospel and to the church. And that as the persecuted church is facing waves of opposition from kings and empires and such. It's really Satan who's sort of standing behind it all um, as sort of the sort of the the author of of evil and opposition to the body of Christ. Let's let's read in Revelation 12, 1 through 6. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in the birth pains and the agony of giving birth. 
And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head had seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to him. She gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. I think it's, um, when you look at Old Testament imagery, I think, I think it's fairly clear what's happening. In verse 1, John is describing all these celestial events of the moon and the stars and... Um, the sun, and re, and I think in the 12 stars, I think this is meant to symbolize, you know, the Old Testament people of God. In fact, in Joseph's dream that we've been studying, you know, on um, Sunday mornings in Genesis, this is in fact this, the imagery that he dreamed when he dreamed they would come and bow down to him. But, but I think this represents the Old Testament people of God, Jacob's family, and that that the idea is that and this was prophesied from the very beginning that the Messiah who would come and save his people was going to emerge from the people themselves. The people themselves were in a sense going to give birth to the Messiah. And we know that's exactly what happened through the line of Abraham, covenant with Abraham, the line of David, um, on down to the appearing of, of Jesus Christ. And that this, and that so the, and the woman in this imagery I think is, is clearly the church, the people of God, the people of God of the old and new covenant. But it's, so we, we see this um, spectacle of symbolically of the, the Messiah coming, emerging, being given birth from the people of God. And then we have a dragon who is there getting ready to devour the child, wants to eat the child. And as we read through the rest of this chapter, it's, it's no, no great mystery who this red dragon is. Red probably because he is uh, a murderer, but this is Satan. This is Lucifer. This is the devil himself. And he knows, Satan knows, that if the Messiah is born and goes on to complete his mission of dying on a cross, the war is over. It is his, his defeat is final. And so Satan's not playing around. It says that he goes to the source. He wants to devour the child at the outset. He wants to deter um, the child from growing up and, and accomplishing his mission. And of course, we see this um, with the mobilization under Herod to kill all the baby boys in the Bethlehem area, two and under. So Satan's wanting to snuff out the life of Jesus at the very beginning. We see Satan tempting Jesus in the wilderness to, to, um, to forsake his mission of dying and to um, save himself. And, and, and prove himself to be the Son of God. We see this in the garden, right? Where Jesus is being tempted to be pulled away from um, his mission of dying. But ultimately we know the, the end of that story is that Satan is not victorious, is not successful. Jesus is and is reigning in victory through the cross. And so we, we, we see this um, throughout this passage where we are told that um, they have conquered him by the him by the blood of the lamb, the authority of the of the gospel. Now it's interesting that at that point, um, two things happen. Number one, it says in verse seven, "Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, 
and there was no longer any place for them in the heaven, and the great dragon was thrown down. So, so where in the, in the scope of redemptive history this great celestial war happened? Did it happen um, prior to the fall? Um, that's one way to look at it. Is this describing a subsequent action after that where um, you know, there is Satan and his archangels are expelled from heaven at the point of Jesus dying on the cross. Remember, Satan seems to have had access to God in the book of Job. He's presenting himself. He's giving an account. Um, but we, we don't know. But ultimately, what we do know is that Satan has been thrown down from heaven. There's this cosmic battle. And Satan knows he's on his last legs, but is lashing out in fury Okay, over the fact that his time is limited his time is short, okay, and and you can see this in um, in this text that as Satan is thrown down, he's still given reign over the earth for a season, for a time, and he's like a wounded animal, right? He's lashing out in fury. He's it says he's pursuing the church, he's pursuing the woman, he's pursuing the people of God, and it says that God leads the people out into the wilderness for 1260 days. It's just, again, a symbolic idea that while this is going to be a time of great persecution for the church between the first and second comings of Christ, ultimately God is protecting his people. Yes, he's testing them and tempering them and sanctifying them, but this season will not last forever. There will be a date and time certain in the future when Jesus comes back um, to set things aright and put Satan into the abyss once and for all. Now, we have to ask, what does this, what does this mean for us? When we think about um, the posture we are in as the people of God, this side of heaven, we think about the tumult in our world, we think about the chaos, we think about the suffering. It's very natural for us to think about, well, what is the solution to this, okay? What is, how are we to overcome how are we to how are we to help stem the tide of 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 evil in the world and help to usher in and bring in the kingdom of God? And John reminds us of something in here. It's so counterintuitive. It's so countercultural. It, it, it's it catches us short. Right? Listen to what he says, verse eleven. And they have conquered him, meaning Satan. And all the forces that oppose us and they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony for they loved not their lives even unto death they've conquered first by jesus okay but but even then by the word of their testimony so it's very natural to think about well if we just elected the right person or the right people or implemented the right policies then this would stem the tide of evil, right? And some of us look at this upcoming election that way on both sides of the aisle. Well, if we don't remove the current occupant in the White House, we're over, we're done. We've, we've, you know, we're, we've lost all hope. Um, and some are on the other side. If we don't keep the current occupant in the house, we're without hope. And obviously neither of these are, are true that the chief weapon that God has always given his people and the church is their testimony, is the word of God, is the gospel, right? It's the gospel that will endure. It's the word of God that will endure. It's Jesus that will endure. And 
we have to not only grab hold of that reality, but remember what it says in verse 11, that it's the testimony of God, for they loved not their lives even unto death. And that's the key, right? And so at, for the word of God to have its full effect through his people, we have to be willing to say, you know what? Our ultimate investment is not in this life and what happens um, politically or culturally or, or what have you. Our ultimate investment in this life is to bring the word of God, is to bring forth the gospel, the only true measure of hope. And that through that, right, um, and being willing to give up our lives, being willing to lay down our lives, being willing to um, submit ourselves to the plan and purposes of God, to be first a citizen of the kingdom and of heaven before we're a citizen of a particular um, political party or even a country. And, and this is just um, sobering for us in one sense because we realize that this might mean defeat in this life from a earthly worldly perspective but ultimately it's the it's the blood of the martyrs of the church that are the seeds of the church that grow the church and it's just a it's just a, a good call for us to remember that ultimately um, because satan stands behind all the evil of the world there's only really one chief weapon that can that can do battle with that and it's the gospel, it's the cross of Jesus Christ, which we want to carry forth in everything that we do. You know, the gospel and the church have always had to battle for their survival in every era, in every age. It was, it was true 2,000 years ago, it's true today. But yet, God has promised to protect his people to, to not, not necessarily their physical lives, but to protect their people spiritually, to bring them into the wilderness, to to protect their eternal souls and salvation so that they can be a witness um, for the glory of God as we wait expectantly for Jesus to return back. So what's our posture, Four Oaks, as we, as we walk through this life? Prayerful obedience, prayerful submission, um, prayerful expectation, prayerful mission, prayerful gospel proclamation. That's to be our priority trusting that Jesus will take care of all the rest. So that is Revelation 12. So we're a little, we're officially more than halfway through this book now. And so when we come back together next Tuesday, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 13, the appearing of the beast. We're going to have all kinds of fun talking about that. Over the course of the weekend, encourage you to catch up on these devotionals if you're a little behind. Get Scotty Smith's book, Unveiled Hope. Continue to read that. Reflect on some of the things. And um, maybe at some point at the end okay, of this, um, our study through Revelation, we'll have some sort of live streaming teaching time where we can take questions and answer things that you might uh, have, have things that you would love to ask. Uh, things that you're you're thinking, learning as we walk through this, we'll we'll do that probably at the end of the book since there's since we still have a good bit to go. So anyway, have a great weekend. See you Tuesday. Let me pray. Lord, remind us that our chief weapon is not our is not our flesh, it's not our political power, it's not our money, it's not our status, it's not our political party. It's you. It's it's the church persecuted with the word of God as our testimony. Let us carry that forth today in Jesus.